0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we're glad to welcome back our guest, Josh Garalski. Last year, he talked to us about founding an organization called Unlocking Communities, which works on the ground in Haiti to help to alleviate some of the physical and financial obstacles that are facing neighborhoods and communities there. In our conversation today, he's going to be talking to us about some of the obstacles and the successes that his organization has had since we last spoke. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not radio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Josh Gorolsky, founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, Josh Gorolsky holds an MA from Loyola University in Chicago and a BSBA from Rockhurst University. As part of his studies, Josh created Unlocking Communities, a social enterprise whose mission is to empower individuals and communities in Haiti to unlock their economic potential through entrepreneurial ventures. The organization achieves its mission by training aspiring Haitian entrepreneurs in business essentials and giving them access to resilient, in-demand, cost-saving, and environmentally friendly products like water filters and stoves that can be sold for commission. You may recall that we spoke to Josh last year in episode 1908, entitled A Heart for Haiti. We've invited him back to speak about what he's learned in the last 12 months and to talk to us about how Unlocking Communities is growing and perhaps even growing internationally. Josh Goralski, welcome back to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you so much for having me, it's it's an honor
0: to be on the show today. Well, I, I have the chance every once in a while to run into you socially, and every time that I do, it sounds like a new chapter is unfolding for you, not only in terms of your organization, but in terms of your growing network of contacts. So why don't we start there? When when I was speaking to you last year in our episode of Heart for Haiti, you had just launched Unlocking Communities, and we talked at, at length about what the business model was. But just in case my listeners have not had a chance to listen to that episode yet, why don't you give us a brief three or four sentences about what the business model of unlocking communities is?
1: Yeah. So the business model of unlocking communities is that we believe that Haitians and locals can be agents of change in their own communities, and that we support them best and walk alongside them in solidarity best when we are able to give them the resources to do so. And in Haiti, the big there's a big need for water filters and items like clean burning stoves. So what we do is we identify local partners who have established long term relationships in the community that are rooted in trust. And we equip those partners to sell water filters and clean burning stoves to their community members on no interest microfinancing loans that are repaid over about six months. And just to give you an idea, if a family buys a water filter and a green burning stove, they can save about 25% of their income when compared with the alternative methods that are being used in Haiti. Additionally, the entrepreneurs that we train through our model, who are the sales agents, they earn commission on selling the products in addition to the education they receive, which helps them grow their own businesses.
0: And so when we're talking about this, we're not talking about a handout. We're not talking about just giving them aid. Instead, we're talking about creating a situation what are they doing in their communities not only for themselves but for their communities? What's the community benefit of this entrepreneurial model?
1: Yeah, the community benefit entrepreneurial model is one, increased education of wash techniques, which is water and sanitation and hygiene. So we all are hearing now about the importance of washing our hands a lot more here. And we are doing exactly that training in Haiti, encouraging people to wash their hands and training them how to do so. We're encouraging them understanding why it's important to drink clean water and the cost savings. Because in Haiti, if you don't have a in-house water filtration system, you're buying bottled water on a daily basis. And that is economically inefficient, and it's also environmentally deadly because each of those bottles of water then gets burned normally or thrown into a lake, which makes way to an ocean of some type and contributes to the, plastic, the global plastic pollution.
0: You just mentioned the importance of clean water, but you, you also just a moment ago mentioned the notion of a clean burning stove. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar with what that is and why that's important, what do we mean when we yeah. say a clean burning stove and why would that be important for a family that maybe is living in poverty to have a stove that burns clean?
1: For sure. We've all seen pictures of beautiful mountains in Canada and Patagonia that are just covered with trees and trees and trees. And back in time in Haiti's history, it used to be that way. Haiti is 90% covered by mountains, and those mountains all had trees on them. And now, to this day, Haiti is over 95% deforested. And so the deforestation is because burning of Charcoal, which is made by cutting down trees, is your only way to get an energy source in Haiti to cook with for rural Haitian families. And so rural Haitian families that need money will go and find the trees on their property to cut down. And once they cut down those trees, they are then able to sell the charcoal, but those trees aren't replanted. So... The logistics of Haiti make it hard to have any kind of other energy source. So what these stoves do is they're not totally free of using charcoal, but they use 50% less charcoal than a traditional stove, which saves the family about $150 a year. And when families are living on about $1,000 a year of income, $150 is a big portion of their
0: income. Well, I hear that in terms of the economic savings, but also, let's just talk about in terms of the health to the family. So I imagine, I mean, we think about England in the Victorian era, sort of socked in with charcoal smoke and coal smoke. It's not healthy for families to be breathing those fumes in their home, is it?
1: Yeah, no, so this stove is basically a metal tin that uses a condensed heat source and doesn't let the heat escape, so that smoke is then condensed and goes up in one spot and doesn't spread out over the room as much. So, exactly, the people who cook have commented about that, and there are a lot of related issues among women who cook in Haiti particularly when it comes to lung health issues related to breathing in a lot of charcoal.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today to Josh Garalski. He's the founder of Unlocking Communities, an organization that works in Haiti to help to bring entrepreneurial solutions to the poverty and health issues that are going on there. You may recall that we spoke to Josh back in our 2019 episode, A Heart for Haiti. Well, as we're talking about this... You basically started this organization from the ground up. You had the idea because you had some connections to Haiti. I recall you saying from the last time that we spoke, both your family and personally, you had been traveling to Haiti. And you you began this organization basically in your garage, it sounds like. And as it has been growing, talk to us a little bit about the ways in which The organization has grown and what you have been doing both on the ground in Haiti and here in the United States to help to make this organization have more impact.
1: Yeah, I I love that saying that you start an organization out of a garage. If I had a garage, I'm sure I would have made that my office, but instead my office was my couch in my family room for a good long time. And so what's really happened over the last year is that we've gone from, when I talked to you last time, I think having two or three businesses up and running to now having 12 businesses up and running, we have impacted over 750 families. With ownership of a water filtration system, that is over 4,000 people having access to clean water through those products. And those these filters last for about 10 years as well, for those who do not listen to the first show. And so for the next 10 years, these families will have access to clean water. What else we've been doing is really starting to peak partnership awareness. And so I have been speaking at local, regional, and even international conferences on our model, and connecting with partners because David, the, only, the way you can grow models like this, especially early on, is by finding organizations to ha- have other connections to Haiti or who have networks. So we're in conversations with universities who have established relationships with churches across Haiti. I've met with some of the heads of the different denominations of churches in Haiti and talked about how we could deploy this model to all their congregations across the whole country of Haiti. And looking at really rapidly scaling the model so that we could rapidly scale the impact. Because when we enter communities in Haiti, each member of a community has an idea for another community for us to go to. So by the end of this year, we are hoping to be in 25 communities by the end of this year. And by the end of 2021, to will be a total of 60 communities, as well as we will begin to make the filter we sell in Haiti right now. It's currently made in the Dominican Republic.
0: And these numbers, if listeners think that these numbers may be small, so you say 30 communities, 750 families, maybe 4,000, people have access right now you're not thinking small because i've looked at some of your numbers and by 2030 you want to have touched one million Haitians that's the goal that you're stretching for tell us what kind of impact getting one million Haitians involved in unlocking communities what would that do for Haiti
1: yeah that would reduce if you think of those one million people if they're each drinking two bottles of water a day, and that's plastic bottles, that would cut two million plastic bottles out of the economy. That would give the working poor in Haiti 15% 15% more income as a family, and that would allow them to maybe send their kids to school or to buy a goat. One of the best investment examples I love to use in Haiti is if you buy a goat, you can sell that goat a year later for about 100% profit and not have to spend any money to really take care of it. You just have to make sure it doesn't like run away or anything. So if you save up your money from not buying bottled water and buy three goats one year, then the next year you could buy six goats, and the next year you could buy 12 Goats. And this is a way for families to begin asset accumulation. And one of the things we've really learned this year is we can never spend enough time teaching and working with the Haitians to understand budgeting. And when you're living in poverty, you don't, you don't think about how much money you're spending over a year on something. You're thinking just day to day. And so we work with our community entrepreneurs so that they can go and educate their communities about how how much they're saving and about what they can do with that money and how they can invest that money. It's, it's a really powerful concept. And so to reach a million people is show that our model is scalable. Because we are a social enterprise, we can reach a million people for a fraction of what it would take a traditional NGO to reach a million people.
0: And one of the things that's interesting to me about that is that you're not just going family to family, but you're also talking about, and you mentioned a moment ago, budgeting, but you're also doing business training, and so it's not simply that you're giving sort of a one-shot solution but it's almost as if you are teaching communities how to use these engines of economic betterment to create the systems around these entrepreneurial families that will begin to allow for capital and for resources to stay in these communities? Because so often when we think about nations like Haiti, it's a story of resources and revenues being moved offshore. And this is a way of, if I'm understanding, trapping some of those resources and revenues in the communities themselves. Do I have that right?
1: Exactly. I could not have it better. I was thinking as you were saying it, I need to pay you to be our spokesperson here. That's exactly what we're doing. We want to keep the community's money in that community so that it can be reinvested in other businesses in their own community.
0: Well, and so in doing that, I think that I have a follow-on question, and that's going to take not only business training, but it will mean eventually that there'll need to be some financial industries growing up around these small entrepreneurial enterprises. What are you doing to think about the ways in which these communities will need access to banking, access to credit? Is that part of the plan as well, or, or are you expecting that other NGOs will bring those those resources in?
1: So we are in conversations with a few different partners who do something that's called community savings groups, which is, in essence, with banking without the structure of banking, I had to set up two bank accounts in Haiti this year, and it took me six hours to set up two bank accounts in Haiti. And by my country manager's account, that that was a speedy process. And so just imagine the logistics of getting bank accounts set up in a country that's still relying on paper as well as trying to do things electronically, that community savings group to keep that money in the community through a trusted network of people that you can then earn interest when that money is loaned out to the other members is something that we are looking at possibly taking on ourselves or in conversations with a few partners who are already doing it because we've actually heard, that the the entrepreneurs wanted. Our entrepreneurs are asking us to hold on to their commissions for as long as we can and pay them in chunks because they don't want to get $7 every time they sell a water filter because they would just go spend it on their everyday or buy something extra. They want to wait till they have $70 after they so sold 10 water filters so that they could go buy a goat or they could buy something for their house to improve their family. So that's really one of the biggest lessons that we took away from last year is the need for additional banking services another pilot that we're just launching literally this week is we've dived in and done a level two business training in one of our communities and are giving three of our entrepreneurs who've been selling our products, we're giving them loans to start their own businesses or to really grow on the businesses that they've had. And these are business ideas that they've had for years, but we've worked with them to go through their plan to understand the cost to help show them financial forecasting of what what the income is going to be. Because in a country like this, if you get a little money, you might start a business not knowing if you're going to make money or not. And so we're helping understand what they should be pricing things at. And working forward, then, we are able to hopefully replicate this model in all the communities that we're working in one day.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton, and we're speaking today with Josh Goralski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, an organization that works in Haiti to help to bring entrepreneurial solutions to health and economic issues. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Garalski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, an organization that works on the ground in Haiti to bring entrepreneurial solutions to the health and financial issues that plague that country. You may recall that we spoke to Josh last year in our episode called A Heart for Haiti, and now we're following up to find out how his organization has been growing and some of the challenges that he's been facing since we last spoke. Just a moment ago, we were talking about community savings groups taking the place of normal banks and talking about ways in which we could circumvent and unlocking communities could circumvent the really onerous process of even opening a bank account you mentioned that you had a fast track and it took you about six hours one of the things that we often hear about in small countries and in impoverished countries like this is the level of corruption and so when we're talking about something like a community savings group what are the ways that people who contribute to organizations like Unlocking Communities can know that the money that they're giving is not being diverted into the pockets of someone along the way? What are the checks and balances for things like these community savings groups and other parts of your organization so that uh, so that folks can know that corruption is being dealt with?
1: Yeah, and so the way we do it, and it, it stems from the model that these community savings groups have, is they have three different keys on the lockbox where they keep the money for their community savings group. And all three of those members have to be there to unlock the box, to put the deposit in or to take money out. So it really reduces the chance of anything happening. Additionally, what we do as an organization is we work through the local organizations. And so as Unlocking Communities, we find, and my country manager, who's Haitian and who's lived in this area his whole life, he knows the trusted networks. And as I was speaking about on the last episode, the most trusted networks we found in Haiti have been the churches and local community organizations, right? They've been in these communities for 50 years or more, some of them. And so they have deep the trust networks. And so really, we use their trust, and we are able to, and privileged to be open, Open to And they trust us to leverage their trust network to identify trustworthy people in their community, entrepreneurs who will sell these products. And then they go out in their community and identify who is a trustworthy client and who will repay the loan. And that's who they sell to. So as an organization, it's really a circle of trust from us. To my country manager and our team in Haiti, to the local community partners, to the entrepreneurs, and all the way to the Haitians who are buying the filters.
0: That's one of the things that rang out to me the last time that we spoke, and that is uh, your organization, Unlocking Communities, is really trusting the genius of the people on the ground, the Haitians themselves. You're not going in with some kind of savior model, but instead, it sounds like the model has been and continues to be really trying to listen to your community partners about what works, about how to navigate these obstacles, and what the needs truly are. And first of all, do I, do I have that correct? Is listening an important part of what you're doing?
1: Exactly. We start with listening. My, the first thing my country manager does is goes to a community, gets introduced to some of the key leaders, and listens to them. Well, in addition to listening, you've also been
0: speaking. I think what I want to turn to now in our conversation is we've talked at length the last time that we spoke about kind of the way that you established this organization and some of the obstacles that you that you were facing on the ground in Haiti. Now I'd like to talk to you about how a person who is basically a, a, a one-person operation with a very small budget and a small staff of partners how a person begins to pivot that and grow an organization like that. And so what have been some of the strategies in the past year you've utilized to help to get the word out, to help to build a donor base and to help to build for want of a better term the buzz around unlocking communities.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and the first thing I really did was I was blessed to find someone who was who became an intern from Loyola University for us and then became my part-time director of operations and Julia works about 10 hours a week from Locking Communities running our whole operations and she has been able to take on the things that I haven't been able to get to and have skills and experiences that have really helped us to elevate and get that brand and buzz out. It's you know, following us on social media, and it's our social media, it's communications, it's donor events, and most powerfully, it's one-on-one meetings with people. I have had countless, like one, I wish there was an easy way in my calendar to count them over last year, but I have had hundreds, if not thousands, of one-on-one meetings or phone calls with people to share the story of unlocking communities, to share our vision for this year of needing to grow, and needing to grow quickly so that we can become sustainable, because like any other small business you have to go through years where you're not profitable before you become profitable because we're a social enterprise we have to go through years where we're essentially losing money on our sales because we haven't opened the factory yet yet and we haven't done certain things that we can't do until we get to an economy of scale but it's just it's speaking, it's being able and welcomed into people's houses and small gatherings. It's being welcomed into churches and, to, and talking to church groups all over the country that have a connection to Haiti or that don't have a connection to Haiti and want to have an interest in Haiti and that are interested in our philosophy of work. As simple as the change philosophy is of unlocking communities, it's Extremely different and sadly still so different than so many other organizations that people are really inspired by how we unlock a community and then we elevate them and then we empower them. And it's all done in solidarity alongside them.
0: Well, you mentioned a moment ago story. And I imagine, since you've been telling us a little bit about your passion for this, that your story is not exactly what uh, entrepreneurs call an elevator pitch, but I imagine you have it pretty down pat. But I'm going to ask a a different kind of question, and that is, how do you figure out who to tell the story to? How do you identify, as you're meeting people in, in these networking events and going out and speaking, how do you identify people? What are the qualities that they might have? That you would say, ah, if I sit down and tell my story to this person, there's a good chance that they'll get it and they'll want
1: to act on it. Excellent question. That's something you know I'm continuing to evolve and perfect to to this day, and I think we all are as networkers. Part of it's you know understanding the landscape of organizations and looking for what types of organizations are they affiliated with? Are they affiliated with Loyola? Are they affiliated with the Catholic Church? Do they do international work in another country, and what is that model? Or are they affiliated with a social enterprise here in Chicago? We are blessed in Chicago to have some really awesome social enterprises that I know and love well. And so if they're interested in a social enterprise locally, it's a lot easier and a lot more likely that they would also be interested in a social enterprise internationally.
0: And so as you're identifying these people, you mentioned that there are other organizations. And so how important is it to Unlocking Communities to have those kind of cross-organizational partnerships? And especially moving forward, how is that going to play into your strategy of growth?
1: It's huge, right? And right now, you know, and most of our growth over the next few years will come through institutional partnerships, right? Individual donors are huge, and that's going to be our, our base of any organization is your individuals that keep, you, keep fueling you to go and expand the work that you're doing. But also, institutional partnerships. We've been blessed to partner probably this year with over five churches at least in another five to ten in the works for the next coming years, that we would partner with them and that they take on doing some of the fundraising and advocacy and sharing our story and raising the funds so that we can then and they can sponsor us going into another community. And from there, it's also the bigger partners. So from these churches, and we've got connected to university partnerships, as I mentioned, who work in Haiti on the education system, and university and other partnerships with larger foundations, which the universities work with as well. So it's working through this beautiful web of how all these organizations fit together, and how. Because of our size and our model and that it's truly 100% Haitian run, we've been able to achieve what no other organization in Haiti to this day has been able to achieve.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Josh Garalski. He appeared on our show last year in an episode entitled A Heart for Haiti. Today, we're talking about what he has learned since we last spoke about running this organization that he helped to found called Unlocking Communities. Well, you mentioned this beautiful web of connections and this beautiful web that is on the ground in Haiti. As you are telling this story and as you are finding these partnerships and as you are thinking about growth – help me to understand to what extent your religious education has been balanced with your business education. So if you were to give percentages about your religious academic training and your business academic training, what percentage of each are you drawing from? Is it 50-50? Is it 70-30? How does that balance work out on a day-to-day basis in running Unlocking Communities?
1: You know, that's, A very interesting question, and I would say that I strive to have it be a 50-50 balance, right? I personally believe some organizations, and I've seen some organizations who are really driven by the call of the gospel, Not forget that at the same time, you do have to operate within the bounds of business operations, and that gets them into trouble, and I've seen organizations run as a business, but then forget and lose the heart of the gospel. And so they get out of whack the other direction. So I really strive for it to be 50-50, right? All of our decisions are based in the people in Haiti and all, and what we do, and it's all for the better. Now, that has to, because we are a social enterprise and we do want to reach sustainability, which we define as basically getting our communities to a point where they're selling enough products that if we were to ever stop fundraising in the United States, that our whole operation in Haiti could continue on without us being present or, and without us supporting it. That is our definition of sustainability. And so from there, it's really that solidarity and that call and that making sure that we never lose sight, that it has to be Haitian-led. People often ask me, oh, are you going to move to Haiti to run this? And I'm like, if I move to Haiti, then the organization relies on me as an outsider versus Haitians running it. And the Haitians are the ones who have to own it and run it at the end of the day for this to be successful and for it to continue seeing the success that we've seen so far.
0: And I know from talking to you in our last visit together that, just as the, the episode says, you truly have a heart for Haiti. You have been traveling there for more than a decade. You have you have on-the-ground personal contacts. You have, you have sort of a family connection to Haiti. And so my question to you now is, is this simply going to be Haiti-centric? Is is this going to be your life's work helping to make sure that there is an economic foothold for Haitians? Or is Unlocking Communities a model that you see as being portable to other economically disenfranchised areas and situations?
1: Yeah, this is a perfect follow-up question to the last question, right, because the call of the gospel tells us not to forget the most poor and vulnerable, and Haiti is by far the most economically poor country in this half of the world. And we never want to pivot away just because it's challenging from Haiti, right? One of the lessons we learned last year is that our model is crisis resistant. For most of last year, Haiti was in a political turmoil or in between various political crises. For a while, they didn't have any gas, so no one could drive around. Then they had some political instabilities, which really caused the whole country to be at standstill for a few months on end. And with everything going on in the world, debt news just got kind of buried. And so we want to be Haiti-specific, but at the same time, the question about balancing that and the businesses from a business case, if we put all of our ag and all of our focus into Haiti... It would be a very risky organizational decision if for some reason something would happen and we'd really have to slow down the pace of our work in Haiti and wouldn't be able to stay open because of it. We need to be focused on an organizational sustainability practice. And so that's where we've decided that we're going to use what's called social franchising and we are going to expand into other countries but we aren't going to be running the operations in other countries. We're going to look for partners on the ground, just like we have found in Haiti, who will run the operations, and we will train them to implement the unlocking communities model in their countries. And we will work with them to adapt the trainings to the cultural dynamics in their own country and adjust whatever else might be needed and stay with them and accompany them to implement the model. And they sell the products that are most in demand there. It's, It's taking the philosophy and it's taking the model and empowering others to implement it. So that is what's in store for the future. And also... Being a launching ground in Haiti has allowed us to develop it so that we can go out into other communities and share what we've learned. But then we can also learn from them, too. We can take back to Haiti things and lessons that we learned through these other implementations. So I am personally really excited for it. People have, for the since I've started, people have asked me from day one, are you going to take this to another country? And I knew we needed to get Haiti going and get Haiti starting to scale before we thought about it. And then I was presented with this model and this concept of franchising, and I was like, this is it. This protects the model and makes sure people are doing it and implementing it intentionally and sustainably. While at the same time, it keeps the power in the hands of the locals.
0: You mentioned a moment ago that this model is crisis resistant. You and I had originally planned to have this interview face to face. We're currently doing it over the phone because we're, as we're recording this, in the midst of not quite quarantine conditions, but certainly social distancing conditions because of the COVID-19 outbreak. How has the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak affected Haiti or has it?
1: Yeah, so I was in Haiti at the beginning of February, and that's when it was just mostly COVID-19 was mostly in China. But Haiti, because unfortunately it's an island, no disease originates in Haiti. They all are brought in by foreigners. So AIDS has been brought into Haiti. Cholera was brought into Haiti by the U.N. aid workers, and the same story of what happened after the earthquake relief, And Haiti suffered from that for years to come as well. And so, really, Haiti got on top of this one in a way I have not seen the country get on top of a big outbreak before. At the airport, everyone was temperature scanned, and I know that is not fully effective, but it's at least showing that they're trying to do what they're able to do. And there was a lot of awareness up at the airport and other educational resources trying to prevent this from entering from the outside. But at the same time, it's challenging because you know it's a small country and that it would be an incredible miracle if it was able to sustain this whole outbreak without it ever entering the country. And so as of the day we're recording this, it has not entered Haiti yet. A disease like this entering KD would certainly be deadly, and it would have a huge impact just given the little infrastructure, medical systems that exist across the island. But I was talking with my country manager yesterday about how we've really increased our hand-washing education trainings that are going on, and we've increased the awareness about buying filtered water because that helps your immune system. That keeps you healthy if you're not drinking contaminated water. So so between the awareness raising that we're doing on the ground as preventative measures as well as the continued work of our model, that's one of the reasons we started with water because water is so fundamental. And in water, it's also addressing the surrounding issues such as hand washing and making sure you're washing your dishes and that you're eating, you're washing your utensils with clean water water as well those are all key pieces
0: to it so what I'm hearing you saying is that part of your model is coupling physical health with financial health is that a good way of phrasing it yes exactly Well, so as we're thinking then about physical health and financial health, is there something that listeners can be bringing to prayer? Because some of my listeners certainly are praying people. What should they be praying for as they're listening to this in terms of what Haiti needs right now, given these physical and financial health risks that they're facing?
1: Yeah, I think... Pray for organizations like us. Pray for unlocking communities. I I openly ask people who are praying people to pray for the success of our work and that we might be able to motivate our entrepreneurs who are out in the field every day talking to their neighbors and their friends and others in the community and doing demonstrations on how to wash your hands, that, you know, that message can get through to them because mentality change and the work that we do in changing culture and in changing behavior is hard, but it's, it's what needs to be done. It's what the communities have asked us to empower them to do, and that's the work that we're doing
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. and we're speaking today with Josh Garalski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, an organization that works on the ground in Haiti to help to bring entrepreneurial solutions to their physical and financial challenges. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We've welcomed back Josh Goralski as our guest. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities. We spoke to Josh last year in an episode called A Heart for Haiti, and you may recall that Unlocking Communities works on the ground in Haiti to help to create financial solutions to physical and economic problems that are there in that impoverished land, and he's been talking a little bit about both both the growth in this past year and some of the challenges that he has faced. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you have had some increasingly high-profile speaking opportunities. I don't want to get out of the conversation without giving you a chance to tell us some of the places that you've had a chance to speak about Unlocking Communities and some of the people that you have for want of a better word, sort of rubbed elbows with in terms of these networking and speaking opportunities. So tell us a little bit about what some of the highlights have been in the past year as you've been getting the word out about this organization.
1: Incredibly, with everything going on this year, there have been two opportunities that I've cherished a lot. And one was to be able to receive the national CNP or Certified Nonprofit Professional Leadership Award, for they give to one of the alumni of their program who has exemplified leadership in the field. But that also gave me the opportunity to speak to over 500 college students on the work of unlocking communities and on just giving them a motivation to start your own organization. To all the listeners out there, if you have an idea, and please keep going with it. I heard an awesome talk, and in this mentor of mine said, if, if your idea doesn't die and, and a year later you're still waking up every day, you're thinking about this idea in the shower, do it. And the only regret I have with unlocking communities is really not making the jump to do it sooner. I believe faith and I believe God had a role in the timing of it, but I believe also there was a little bit of me being scared to take the jump to do it. And, you know, everything worked out timing-wise, but I certainly could have done it sooner. And so another event that I was at last year, this, just last month, and that was incredible, was the Clinton Global Initiative. We are honored to be part of a network of organizations that the Clinton Foundation brings together to to learn from and to, sh- and to allow us to share learnings with other organizations. I was actually there meeting a potential partner who we are looking at expanding into one of the countries that they're working in through that franchising model, and they're really interested in that. But also I got to bump elbows and bump elbows with or leaders from the Red Cross, from Heifer International and also from local community foundations who are working on these Caribbean islands to say, how do we make our economy less reliant on tourism and more reliant on local industries and what does that look like? But climate change was such a key theme at this conference, and it's part of the work that we're doing is helping to fight climate change by eliminating the need for single-use plastics and reducing the pollution, and the statistics that are on our website and the research that we've done with how much pollution we can save by implementing our model with 100 people in Haiti is just incredible. So I encourage you to check that out. But what we've done is, and at that conference talked about is how do we prepare and how do we help build the infrastructure on these Caribbean islands to prepare for another natural disaster? Because the sad reality of it is it's not a matter of If another natural disaster is going to strike the Caribbean, it's just a matter of when, and they're likely going to be of higher intensity than they've ever been before with climate change. And so it drives home the need for unlocking communities' work because what we're doing is helping strengthen the economic fabric of these communities so that communities can have a little bit extra, so that they can be better prepared for when the next natural disaster strikes their community. And, of course, it was the Clinton Foundation Conference, so what would it be without Bill and Hillary Clinton there really having open and honest and candid conversations about their struggles and really just being the facilitators and conveners. So I was definitely humbled and honored to be a part of that.
0: Now, what strikes me about that is that you talked about the fact that these were multinational organizations that were represented at this conference. You are not a multinational organization. You're not a large organization. You're a small organization. And so I'm going to ask you to give us a finger on the pulse here. What are these large organizations getting right and what are they missing in terms of the work and what I guess what I'm asking you is what perspective do you have as a very small and nimble organization that can help these larger organizations to understand their own model better and their own applicability on the ground better?
1: What the organizations are getting right is they have an incredible network and connection and ability to mobilize financial resources. What is challenging in having come from a large national organization before starting Unlocking Communities is the ability to to change. Because you are large and because of your history, it takes you an extremely long time to pivot and change, and the theories behind economic development and the theory of community empowerment, well, it's not a new theory. It's just gained popularity in the international development space within the last 10 to 20 years. And so while these bigger organizations have really had to kind of inside out or rethink their models of empowerment and how they engage with communities, we developed our model with empowerment at its core and empowerment first so that we are able to access communities in a different way. And given our size and nimbleness, we are able to adjust and partner, but yet at the same time our model is so rapidly scalable. That to big organizations, they, they see that we could easily bring on more staff and, and take our organization being five or ten times or a hundred times the size it is now because it's so beautifully run and owned by each local community and that we're using the existing partnerships that are there. One of our biggest assets is the church relationships and the relationships with the people in the local
0: communities. And you may not want to answer this next question, so I, I understand if, you, if you'd if you like to demur, but is there competition between large organizations and an organization like yours? Is there turf battles, or have you found, as you've been sort of entering this larger scale of operation, that there really is solidarity and, and a, a willingness to use all resources for the greatest common good?
1: I would be lying if I said there wasn't competition to a certain point or right. I think if you recognize your own space, because we're we not seen in direct competition to them yet because we're providing a unique service and that they could actually achieve their mission through supporting someone like us to be a program implementer for them, that's a way in which partnerships and solidarity can beautifully play out. But, you know, there is competition and, you know, we're at that kind of stage where small is beautiful and we're enjoying that, but yet scaling. and so you know, I think we'll definitely see that as we come, but it's what are your differentiators? And when I build Unlocking Communities, I distinguish it that I never wanted to be the huge organization that really, you know, there's a specific way large organizations go after fundraising, and those of you who have received direct mail appeals from them know about what language they use. And, stuff. and I said, I never want to go after it that way. I, we need to have a Tone. We need our social media to reflect the people that we're, we're empowering. It needs to be Haitians in our social media. Someone said to me this year, I love how you rarely have a picture of someone who's not Haitian in your social media feed. And we do that really intentionally. It's harder. We don't do as many posts, but it's all locally driven. And so from there, how do we grow And it's starting out with your compass pointed in a slightly different direction, and that we're new is able to have it pointed that way, where other organizations are starting to slowly change and possibly get theirs pointed in the same direction as well.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're welcoming back our guest, Josh Garalski. He spoke to us last year about his work with the organization Unlocking Communities that works on the ground in Haiti to help to bring economic relief to that impoverished nation through entrepreneurial models. And we're talking today about what he has learned since we last spoke, some of the challenges that he's faced, and some of the ways in which he has and his organization have met those challenges. Okay, I'm going to ask you to think ahead to the future. You have this goal in 2030 of having reached 1 million Haitian families. So I'm now talking to the Josh Goralski in 2030, and I'm asking him to give some advice and some wisdom to the Josh Goralski that's sitting here right now. What do you think that that Josh, 10 years from now, will have learned, and what do you think that Josh 10 years from now, could say to you right now to help to encourage you and to show you the next steps on your path?
1: Yeah, I think it's knowing when to run and when to walk. There are some times when you have to run and there are some times you have to walk and that. We're living through a moment right now when we should be running, but because of everything that's going on in the globe, we have to be walking a little bit. But how do we keep empowering our patient communities to run as much as they are able to as long as the situation there stays steady? At the same time, I think another lesson is that I've had to learn so far, and I'm sure in 10 years I'll better understand this, is don't hesitate to make the ask, right? People are wanting to get involved with causes. They're wanting to get deeply engaged. And it's never be afraid to make the ask for what you really want. And, you know, shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you'll end up among the stars somewhere. And, that's, you know, that's what we've done with our 2030 goal, and it's, I've been told it's conservative by some advisors on the ground in Haiti. So So hopefully it is. To others, they think it's the biggest moonshot that could ever be achieved.
0: Well, how can listeners begin to get involved? You are on the ground in Haiti working with Haitian partners, but those that are maybe here in congregations or those that are in college right now, what are some ways that they can begin to get tangibly involved in the work of Unlocking Communities?
1: The first thing you can do is really help us as we work to educate donors about the work that we're doing and about the philosophy of our model, right? I have learned so much by looking at other organizations and following them. So please, if you're a social mediaite, please share our work on social follow us. And then share our work, share our posts with your network. You have no idea just raising awareness of our model both helps us as an organization, but it also helps other organizations doing similar work. Because when people read of one organization doing something, they think it's cool. When they read of two, they're like, oh wow, this is really how we should be approaching development right now. And the second thing is if you're able to financially support either individually, please go to our website to learn how unlocking to see how you can support financially, or you can support with your parish. I do a lot of speaking opportunities with parishes, and there's been multiple parishes who have said, hey, we want to step up and we want to be in solidarity with the community in Haiti, and our parish wants to sponsor our community in Haiti, and we can talk about what that would look like. It's a great way for you to be engaged, but also to engage your community as well. And And there's been some incredible results that come from that, and it gives you a physical connection with one community in Haiti, which is beautiful because, at the end of the day, it's all relationships. And please, I'm always open to have a conversation with any of you about the work, to go more in-depth or to answer any questions that you have. You can always reach me at josh at unlockingcommunities.org, and I try to answer my email in a few days. So that's josh at unlockingcommunities.org.
0: Well, I know that I asked you this question the last time that we sat down together, but I'd like to revisit it, and that is, you know, you've, you've spoken throughout this conversation about the ways in which you have tried to integrate and bring your, your faith life into your work, but help me to understand, in the time since we last sat down and spoke together, how has your faith grown What have been some of the challenges to your faith, and what have you been learning about your faith in this process of trying to grow the organization and the impact of Unlocking Communities?
1: I have learned that it is hard. I think I have had my faith tested more this last year than probably any time before. And there's a lot that I shared in the first episode about my faith journey and kind of story and what I accompanied my family with. But in this episode, when you take something on and when you dive in and when you really let go of the shore and walk on the water, to use that metaphor, you have to have that courage. And when you take those first few steps, you're like, oh, these little things, the little waves shake you so much that make you feel like you're almost drowning. And there's been a lot of those little waves this first year that have come our way between what I mentioned is going on in Haiti, uh, a few personal things have come up, and then it's just, you know, as a small organization, you have to try to get enough money just to kind of, Pay the bills for this year and pay for starting next year. And you want to make commitments that you'll be there long term. And it's having that stability is key. And so my faith life is definitely a good question. And over the last year, really. I've really seen, though, a beautiful example in Haiti, and where my faith is restored, is how these faith communities in Haiti, different Christian denominations, can come together and work on a project like Unlocking Communities. Our most successful community just sold 100 water filters within the last two months, and they bring together people from five different Christian churches in the town. Even I think there's one or two voodoos in the group as well. And they bring together about 20 of them to go and sell these water filtration systems in the community. And that is just a beautiful example of, of interreligious dialogue and conversation and community strengthening that's happening. So that is, you know, that's where I get my energy right now.
0: We've talked about the fact that we're having this conversation during the outbreak of COVID 19. How do you see this contagion, this pandemic, impacting your ability to be on the ground in Haiti in the coming months? Yeah. What what limitations does it create and how are you thinking about being able to be in contact even without being physically on the ground in Haiti?
1: The beautiful thing is that technology has really improved. So there's not... Oh, more than a 48-hour period that goes by when my country manager and I are not trading stories about something or talking over messenger or, you know, talking on the phone, depending on the strength of the Internet connection that day. And then, you know, there's a trip. I have a trip planned, actually, three weeks from now. We'll see if it goes, if Haiti's still safe. It looks like it's key to go. We have a big training with all of our community managers coming up in Haiti. But I'm certainly aware, and we've taken steps, at the same time, this drives home the point why organizations need to be a hundred percent run by locals is because they're from these communities, they're there, and they can help us advise us on how we best respond to the situation change in Haiti. Hopefully it doesn't. But as to just how does the situation change and being that our country manager runs the show we are just here to support him, so I'm sending him additional training resources and additional materials, but, you know, day to day, he's running it. So I can go a while without having to be down there if that would be required as well. But hopefully we can continue to go to really bring back the stories and share that and also to just continue doing our monitoring and evaluation work that we have an ethical obligation to do to our donors.
0: I think my last question is going to be this we're recording this and listeners mostly will be hearing our words in a situation where they have been safe and comfortable for the majority of their lives. And now suddenly COVID-19 has made them feel for perhaps the first time desperation, disconnectedness out of controlness. You have operated in a context in Haiti where out-of-controlness, and that kind of destabilization is a fact of life. So what words of hope would you offer from your experience on the ground in Haiti, either what you have seen or what you have learned from your Haitian partners, that could be a comfort and maybe a guidance to those who perhaps for the first time are feeling the kind of destabilization that Haitians live with every day?
1: Yeah. You could not have said that more right. You know, so much of last year was challenging for me because of destabilizations, and it's it's truly out of your hands. And in a country like Haiti with government instability, it's truly out of the hands of the people. And for you to kind of surrender and live your life day to day, I oftentimes wonder what it is. And truly, even the highest experts that I've talked to, the people who are most connected with government do not know the outcome. But you have to live on. You have to go living day to day. And so I think what I'm continually inspired by in Haiti is their perseverance and their ability to rely on each other as communities, the tight-knit communities that you have in Haiti because of instability that you've gone through is so inspiring to me so please I was doing this the other day as I was watching mass online I was texting a few friends you know during the sign of peace and just saying hi to them and checking in on them and offering connection right even though we can't physically be there for each other how can we virtually be there for each other or how can we go out and do random acts of kindness for people and this all has the ability to remind us of how the is one interconnected family, and we're going through this at the same time people in Italy are going through this, at the same time people in rural China went through this, too. And we all know what we're feeling, and it doesn't discriminate, rich or poor, everyone is going to go through this. So that is beautiful, and that's one thing that I've seen in Haiti And talking with people. And no matter their income level, they are impacted by government instability. On some level, it does vary a little bit, but their their lives are impacted. No matter if you're a small rural farmer or if you're running a big business in the capital city, your life's impacted when still living in Haiti. Um, definitely, though, we will together, I'm sure, make it out of this stronger as a community. And our faith and our kind of beliefs and convictions to to supporting each other will be deepened by this time of crisis. I am sure.
0: Well, Josh Garalski, I'm so glad that you had a chance to come back and speak to us about the lessons that you've learned since we last had a chance to speak about unlocking communities. It's clear that you're making an impact on the lives of those who are in desperate need of something to change and something to get better. And I I want to thank you again for heeding the call of your inner voice to follow this lead and for sharing your story with me and my listeners today. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much, David. It's an honor to
0: be here with you and yours. We've been speaking today with Josh Goralski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities. He holds a master's degree from Loyola University in Chicago and a BSBA from Rockhurst University. As part of his studies, Josh created Unlocking Communities, which is a social enterprise whose mission is to empower individuals and communities in Haiti to unlock their economic potential through entrepreneurial ventures. We spoke to Josh last year in our episode, A Heart for Haiti, You can find out more about his organization at unlockingcommunities.org. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.